Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor João Pedro de Magalhães. Pedro is a professor at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He's a longevity researcher and an important longevity advocate and futurist. He runs the widely read JP Senescence webpage and Twitter account. I was also looking forward to this podcast because Pedro and I share similar views about transhumanism, aging and the cruelty of death. In this podcast, we talked about cryonics, transhumanism, inflammaging, and cellular reprogramming, but also drugs that he is developing and testing for lifespan extension. Enjoy the podcast. It's great to have you here today. I'm happy to have you here today as a guest. And one of the reasons is that I think you're quite influential in the field, not just as a researcher, but also as a thinker. And when I was growing up, I read your webpage, and I think I was also influenced a bit by um but you're writing and yeah it's great to have you here well thank you it's it's a pleasure and thank you for the the kind words i'm i'm glad someone uh, you know reads my my website and uh, and that that has a positive impact in the field yeah, I'm, it does i actually checked so your twitter is among the top 10 most influential aging twitter handles so you're you're quite influential does this show like do people know you at conferences or um so so people used to know me for the website I have to say so that I've had people coming to me at conference and saying oh you know I know your name you're the guy who created the senescence.info website uh a lot of people go wow I thought you'd be older because that's been online for like more than 20 years <laughs> you don't look that old I actually started the website I was an undergraduate so so quite a long time ago so so I've had quite a few people come to me at conferences because of the website I've had a few people um uh, that know me from Twitter and people that I've kind of started to interact on Twitter and then met uh, at conferences or, or or in person. Uh so that that does happen sometimes, yes. Yeah, just on Twitter we don't have a picture of people, so sometimes we interact with each other, but we don't know how the other person looks. Uh yeah, I suppose that's true. Although I do I do well, I do have a photo of me on on my website and uh, on on Twitter. Um but you're right not everybody has that. Yeah and I I also enjoy reading your your news on Twitter it's um it's always interesting. And what I wanted to ask you more about about like the philosophy behind aging research why did you decide to start this webpage how did you get into aging research? So I I've never made any secret about why I work on aging and I work I mean I started working on aging because I wanted to cure aging and uh So so it started when I was a child and I realized that everybody ages and everybody dies and and you know my parents would die I I don't remember the exact age but I was relatively young I'd be 7 8 9 years old something along those lines um and, and so when I realized everybody aged I figured you know what why, why can't we develop a cure for aging um in fact when I was a child I had pneumonia and my great grandfather um died of pneumonia but of course I didn't die because we had penicillin and antibiotics. So I figured, you know, the same way we now have medicines that cure diseases they used to kill us 50 years ago, maybe we can develop a, a therapy, some sort of medicine to cure it. And so from very early in life I decided I wanted to study aging and I wanted to solve aging. I, I, at the time I didn't even know it was possible to uh, to study aging and um, so um, so I was quite naive I suppose. Now of course obviously now we understand aging is quite a complicated process. It's not that easy to to cure um it's not that easy even if to slightly slow it down uh but that was the motivation the motivation was that 
aging is this barrier. Even if you take great care of your health, even if you exercise, you eat right, you do all those things, you're still going to age and you're still going to die. And so will your loved ones. Um, and so I think it's an imposition on the human race that, uh, that we, in theory, can overcome with technology. So that, that's the philosophy behind my work. So you said that you were interested in aging before you even knew that it's malleable and we can do something about it. I find this um, quite cool. So for me, it was the other way around. I only got interested in aging after reading um, books and thinking and people telling me that, yeah, maybe we can do something about it. Uh, yeah, that's right. I think that the first I came across to aging theories, I mean, remember, this was before the internet. Um, but, you know, I used to go to the library. I remember going um, on my first trip to the US, I went to the, I think it was the Library of Congress in Washington and, uh, and checking out some books there. And, and uh, so, and even in Portugal, uh, checking, reading about the oxidative theory of aging. So, so, the idea that oxidation creates molecular damage that drives aging, that was, that was the first I came across to, to the aging process or to studies of aging. So, so yeah, so when I started, I suppose I did not actually thought I was going to be the first one to even do anything about aging. Um, and then I discovered, no, I wasn't going to be the first one. There was already experiments in genetics. There was caloric restriction. So there was already uh, quite a body of work uh, on the biology of aging. Uh, which actually made it even more exciting. It meant, okay, that there's something we can build on um, and, and just push the field forward. So that, that was the, the motivation at the time. You know, I, ju I just find it surprising that I'd figure no one wants to lose their loved ones, right? So why is not everyone an aging researcher? What stops people? Uh, maybe it is really that people don't know that we can do anything about it. What, what do you think? Well... I think there will be different motivations of, of colleagues. I mean, I know quite a few people in the aging field who are the same philosophy. They work on aging because they want to develop a cure, or I mean, at least that's how they started. I mean, then you realize really developing a cure for aging is really, really complicated. It's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, it's not going to happen when I'm alive. So, so they then, you know, uh, I suppose they then try to figure other things, or they tend focus on more uh, realistic goals. Uh, but I do know quite a few people who, who, some of them publicly, others in private admit that that is their motivation. Um, and then, of course, you have a lot of scientists that just motivated, you know, or, or curiosity-driven. They found the aging process very interesting, just like other people find, I don't know, black holes interesting. Or, you know, that there's a lot of very interesting problems in science. Um, so they're not philosophically motivated like I am, but you know, they're, they're just curiosity driven, so to speak. Um, so I, I guess the point is that you, you have different motivations to work on aging. Uh, I do think that quite a lot of people are, you know, let's, let's say philosophically driven to, to you know, develop interventions, so to say, maybe not develop a cure, but to develop interventions for aging. Um, I, I think there's quite a lot of uh, scientists in the field that are driven by that. But as you said, not everyone says this publicly. Do you think this is because we have an image problem? People worry that they won't get grants or support if they talk publicly about this? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think that's, that's the problem. I've always been very open about how, I mean, why I work on aging and how, how I see it as a, as a problem. Um, but, you know, just I, I posted a tweet just the other day uh, saying, you know, if, if you... 
if you tell people that you're trying to discover a, a drug for Alzheimer's, everybody loves it. If you say you're discovering a drug for cancer, everybody loves it. If you say you're discovering a drug for aging, people ask why. I mean, why you want to do that, right? So, uh, so we do have, I, I suppose, uh, I want to say PR, but the public's perception of intervening in aging, um, it generates a lot of questions and even opposition not for by everyone but for for some people so in, in that regard we still have a lot of uh lot of work to do um i, I suppose there's also it's not just i mean it raises questions of uh, overpopulation equality etc I, I suppose the other issue is that um i think a lot of people don't believe it's possible um i mean i don't think we're going to cure aging within my lifetime so if i say um we're going to cure aging or someone says we're going to cure aging you know, I, I'm somewhat skeptical. So it, it's like someone coming on and saying, hey, you know, next year we're going to build a spaceship and we're going to go to Alpha Centauri. Faster than, you know, faster than the speed of light. You go, yeah, right. right. So, so I, I think there's also a certain skepticism hmm. um, about such claims. Um, having said that, a lot of the field, I suppose, is not focused on, you know, curing aging. It's focused on uh, developing... Um, ways of retarding or developing therapies that retard aging. Uh, I think the vast majority of, pro I mean, that's what I do in the lab. I mean, we, we don't have a way of curing aging. Um, so, so that's what we're trying to do. We try to develop diets or, or, or drugs that slow down the aging process. That, that's kind of what we're focusing in. Uh, and that's more realistic. I think that's plausible. I think that's feasible in a foreseeable future, developing of longevity drugs, for example, and we're doing some work on this. Um, and so that, that's something that's a little more uh, realistic and more acceptable. Uh, and so that's one way of saying, hey, we, we're developing drugs that will slow down the incidence of multiple age-related diseases. And that, that, that's something that I think gains a lot more acceptance, the, the, the geroscience paradigm, so to speak. Yeah, we have to start somewhere uh, on this road. But What, what is very interesting is that people don't seem to draw a reasonable distinction between dreams and hopes and the everyday work of a scientist. It should be acceptable to dream big, for example. No one complains when people say, let's stop climate change or let's end wars, right? But if we said maybe let's cure aging or stop aging, then people are a bit skeptical because, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with you. Yes, you're right. And I think, again, I think it's because it raises issues of... Uh, Overpopulation, um, equality. Um, you know, I, I, to me, that's 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 one of the reasons. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, if you work on Alzheimer's disease, you say you want to cure Alzheimer's. I mean, and, and progress on Alzheimer's has been, you know, pretty disappointing, right? So, uh, so, but that that's the goal. That's the end goal. Even if it may take a long time to reach it, um, I suppose in aging is because of this. I would even say ethical or social, sociological concerns that people have about intervening in the aging process. Oh, aging is a natural process. I mean, a disease, not so much, but aging is a natural process. Um, so, so again, that's something we have to, to do more work in trying to address the concerns because some of them, I think, are viable con concerns, you know, right? The, the reasonable concerns. I mean, if people stop dying or The mortality decreases a lot. That is going to make overpopulation worse. I mean, that is a, there is a, a, a concern that, uh, that we need to address. Um, so, so I think that's something we need to do uh, uh, 
more work in trying to, in a way, educate the public um, about the, the kind of work we do. And for example, my website that we mentioned at the start, that, that was one of the attempts I wanted to, to do, or that was one of the goals um, of the project, was attempting to, to really reach out to, to the public in general about some of the concerns regarding research on aging. That actually brings me to another question, and sorry for jumping around so much. Uh, we once were talking on Twitter how there is not much representation of positive longevity and uh, in science fiction and writing, right? There are very few books that even paint a good picture of such a future. I agree, but I think that's a general problem of, of, of science fiction is that, you know, you, you need conflict in a science fiction book or, or, or novel or, 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 or movie. I mean, if you want to make a, a movie about creating dinosaurs, right, something has to go wrong, right? You know, the scientists have to screw up somewhere. Otherwise, it's not a movie. I mean, creating a, a park, a Jurassic Park of dinosaurs where people go and are amazed and everybody's happy. I mean, that's not a movie. That's not a book either, right? So, so something needs to go wrong. Um, and I think if you, you know, extrapolate that, not just to, to uh, aging, but to other technologies, I mean, that's what, this, there has to be conflict somewhere. So I think that's, that's the reason why um, longevity has not been, um, I would say, portrayed in a positive light, by and large, in, um, in science fiction movies uh, and books. Um, uh, the, the thing that always puzzles me a little bit is that sometimes there's, uh, you know, science fiction uh, stories, they're set 3,000 years into the future, you know, people can travel amongst the stars, they, you know, and they still grow old. You know, I, I'm thinking, hey, you know, if you have 3,000 years, thousands of years into the future, you have all this technology, surely you've solved aging already, right? I mean, that, that's before you, <laughs> you develop faster than light travel, you should solve aging. So that, that one puzzles me a little more. <laughs> Yeah, the idea of death and a normal lifespan is so ingrained that people cannot suspend their disbelief, I guess, even in science fiction. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult because you kind of assume it's immutable. But again, most people are not aware that we can do something about aging. Uh, I mean, we cannot cure it, but we can, you know, extend lifespan in animal models, including mammals with caloric restriction, uh, with genetics, with drugs, and so on. So most people are not aware that the process of aging is malleable. So, so then, you know, it, it, they don't think about it in those terms. Right. So with clinical progress, eventually it would be more accepted, presumably. Yes. I mean, there, there's a lot of technologies that were considering, the, you know, Frankenstein. I mean, uh, types of you know, heart transplants. Uh, so, so there's a lot of uh, technologies and medical advances. And, and, I mean, some medical advances are being gruesome. I mean, a heart transplant is a pretty gruesome procedure if you think about it. Uh, but it saved lives, right? So, um, so it, it's a question of you know acceptance, uh, cultural acceptance. Um, curing aging or uh, even interventions in aging are still, you know, on on most people. They're still not on most people's minds. Yeah, and people would be afraid of change. And to some extent, it's of course reasonable, but to some extent, it's it's stopping progress when people are always afraid of change. And some of the stories are actually even not just. There's some almost technophobic, if you think about some classics like Brave New World or the picture of Dorian Gray, they're not just neutral about longevity and science, they're like almost very negative. Um, yes, I suppose that's a broader issue. Um, you know, people are all, you know, there is a certain 
uh, I don't know, uh, opposition sometimes to, as you're saying, to change and to technological progress. I don't think that happens to everybody, but, you know, in, in our societies, there is certain, certain opposition and certain um, mistrust about new technologies. Uh, but, you know, if something, you know, particularly in medicine, if something is safe and improves your health, people will accept it. It's, it's uh, I, I think that's, that's kind of inevitable. So, uh, I mean, if you, if you ask people, hey, if I have a little pill that will make you live 200 years in, in good health, that's, if you ask around, there's a lot of people going to say, no, I don't want that. Uh, but trust me, if that were introduced and people started taking that pill and being healthier, everybody would want it. Uh, that, that's just, you know, uh, inevitable. I totally agree. The thing I would add is just that, well, we don't have examples yet uh, of such a, a breakthrough. I mean, I'm not talking about curing aging, but having some sort of uh, prophylactic, you know, preventive longevity drug that people can take and will prevent multiple age-related diseases. I mean, you could argue that aspirin, maybe statins, fetal, but, but they're not really, uh, I, I don't think they're really uh, geroprotectors. So, so what we really need in the field is a success story. You know, is something, you know, makes people live 5% longer. You know, that, that's all we need, but retards the progression of multiple age-related diseases. Um, that, that's, that's what we need, some sort of safe intervention, probably a drug, that, um, that works, uh, even if the effect sizes are small, but it works. And, and that will start to change people's perceptions. As many people know, uh, Medicabulan is trying to develop drugs that slow aging in dogs, right? I'm wondering if a proof of principle in dogs would change the opinion of people. What do you think? Mm, I'm not sure. I I'm a little, little skeptic. I mean, because people, if you, if you watch the news, I mean, there's news about curing cancer in mice all the time, right? <laughs> I mean, we've cured cancer in mice so many times. I, I, I don't know how mice still get cancer. So, uh, but then you go, people are aware that you know what you do in animals doesn't always work in humans, so um, so I would say that would help. You know everything helps, right? I mean, so in, uh, even studies in rodents, in mice, they help. So having an intervention in dogs, um, an anti-aging intervention that works, I would say would help. Whether it would lead to widespread acceptance, I don't know. I think it would lead to clinical trials, and it would lead to to uh, to closing in that translational gap between preclinical and clinical applications. So it will help bring it to humans. But until we actually have humans on a particular intervention, on a drug or an intervention that works, until we have that, uh, that that's really when, that's, that's going to be the Sputnik moment for the field. That really is going to be the, the moment, the, the great breakthrough. Okay, so to sum up, there are two important things. One is better representation in art and media, and the other one is, of course, the clinical success. So these two things would help a lot. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, a, there's an element of PR and marketing. Yes, it helps, which I think has been much better. I mean, anti-aging used to be almost like, ooh, a dirty word. You know, I work on aging. Oh, don't say that, <laughs> right? So it used to be quite, uh, um, you know, frowned upon. Uh, and now, you know, I, I think the field is, is, is on a positive um, trajectory, on a growth trajectory. You know, there's big companies that, and I think it's been driven in part by the, by the marketing, by focusing on, you know, retarding aging, by focusing on 
um, retarding multiple age-related diseases, and it's also been driven by the science, the advances in preclinical models. So when you look into the future, I think those those go hand in hand. On one hand, you know, it's the public awareness, but on the other hand, uh, as well, you need the science. You know, the, the science has to deliver, right? I almost think it would be cool to have like a prize for short stories that promote longevity and science. I think that might be really cool. Um, yeah, I think that, that that would be a good idea. Yes, you know, I, I think there's. Uh, I did a, I did a couple of stories on this, but uh, in the past, I did one that was published. I think it was in the Independent uh, newspaper in the UK, uh, and others have done similar work. So I, I think that 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 could be a good idea. Yes, to encourage you know uh, people to to write about uh, longevity with a positive outlook. I need to suggest this to Vita Dow that might be a nice idea. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and okay, so we covered this, but going back to your, your web page and your early life, wh what were the influences? Was it back then the internet or books? Were the forums when you were starting out? Uh, yes, I suppose when the internet started, it was, uh, was very helpful um, because I was an undergraduate back then. So I remember um, starting to connect with scientists in the field. Um, Uh, Bernard Streller, who, who sadly passed away some years ago already, uh, but he was one of the first I connected with. So he was an, a pioneer in the biology of aging. Uh, I remember connecting with uh, Aubrey de Grey, also in, in, I don't remember how, probably some, some forum or <laughs> some mailing list, you know, 25 years ago or more. Uh, the late Robert Bradbury, who had one of the, if not the first anti-aging company, um, so, so I started to, to interact. I started to read about the topic. I started, oh, wow, you know, that, there's quite a lot. I mean, I'd read books on aging already, so I knew there was scientists. Um, but then I started to realize there was a lot uh, more activity, even though the field of aging was and is still relatively small compared to, for instance, cancer biology, right? So, so yeah, so the internet was very helpful in particularly connecting with people all over the world. Um, and starting to uh, to interact with uh, like-minded individuals. I'm curious, um, talking about the old, old internet, were you ever active on like the caloric restriction mailing list or the Immortality Institute forums? I remember these were like early grassroots kind of uh, projects back then. So I don't remember ever being part of the caloric restriction mailing list. Uh, I have been to the Mortality Institute forums, uh, mostly like to advertise positions in, in the lab and so on. Um, so I, I have been there, but I wouldn't say I was a very active participant. Uh, I suppose um, initially I joined some transhumanist um, mailing lists. Um, so that's, that, that's where I, I, I had some interactions with not just, of course, people working on aging and life extension, but other other topics as well. And for everyone who doesn't know, what does define transhumanism? What is it? So that's a good question. I, I think to me, transhumanism is just uh, someone that wants to use technology to improve the, the human condition or to improve his, himself or herself. To me, that's, that's what transhumanism is, uh, which I think is quite a broad definition. But that's, that's, to me, that's the basic, that's the essence of transhumanism is uh, um, adopting technology and accepting technology and trying to use technology in a safe way, of course, to, to improve oneself. Um, 
So, you know, life extension technology would be an example of a transhumanist technology. That, that, but, but there's many others, some of them much more mundane than life extension. Would you say, so life extension falls in this category? Um, what about cryonics? Um, I would say cryonics would fall as well into transhumanism. It's, 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 it's not about improving ourselves, but it's, I mean, I see cryonics as a, a bridge to the future. So, uh, so it's, it's, I suppose, an alternative, even though an unproven and, um, you know, risky to say the least technology to, to overcome death. So, uh, so yes, I, I would consider cryonics as part of the transhumanism. And I mean, some of the conferences on transhumanism that I've been to, um, they tend to feature cryonics as a technology and life extension and other things like AI and cybernetics and so on. But life extension, aging research, and, and cryonics tend to be quite uh, prevalent. So the idea of cryonics is basically that after death or just around death, you can freeze yourself for a non-zero chance of revival in the future, right? Uh, yes, exactly. It's the idea that uh, cryopreservation um, after death will perhaps, you know, it's, 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 I would say it's a low probability of success, way less than 50%, but it's non-zero. So it's a low probability, um, but non-negligible um, of, uh, of being able to be revived one day and whatever killed you uh, at that time being possible to cure. So, so that's, that's the argument behind it. And it's quite cool, actually. So we're quite good at preserving small animals or cells in liquid nitrogen. So there is quite a lot of progress in that, but humans are harder, right? Well, it's an issue of, of size. It's, it's physics really just takes longer to cool down a, a big, I mean, let's let, not even talk about humans, organs. I mean, when you talk about organs, you can cry preserve small tissues, I mean, cells, uh, very small animals. You can cryopreserve um, and small human organs like corneas can be cryopreserved successfully. But anything bigger, it, it just takes longer. Um, again, it's a physics issue. It's, it's, it just takes longer for the temperature to cool down uh, in the center of the organ. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's been a problem for quite a long time. I mean, there are better cryopreservation uh, solutions, um, but it's still a problem, uh, cryopreserving larger organ, which is, a, I mean, even outside of cryonics, it's, it's, it's a problem, for example, for organ banking. So, um, so one of the big applications of cryobiology and cryopreservation would be in organ banking. You know, if we could, so if so, when someone dies and if they leave their organs for transplantation, you know, you need to find a matching donor very rapidly. Uh, if instead of that, you could just um, cryopreserve the organs in a safe technology, um, then this would save thousands of lives. So, so even for organs, that that's still a limitation. You know, any larger human organ cannot be uh, successfully cryopreserved. So, so yes, there's still quite a lot of hurdles, I think, from a technical, technological perspective. Presumably, the field is not very big and not much investment is happening. No, I think cryobiology is, is even smaller than aging. So I, I think, I mean, I think like cancer research is the biggest. I mean, it's lots of lots of funding, lots of scientists in cancer research. Then you can see, you know, aging as a, as a much smaller than cancer, 
smaller than Alzheimer's disease uh, research. So you see aging is a smaller field um, and cryobiology is much smaller field. So, so there's very few people working on cryobiology. Um, I mean, it's perhaps not too surprised there's not many people working on cryonics per se, um, but it is a bit surprising that there's very few people working on cryobiology because, as I said, if you can perfect cryopreservation solutions, if you can perfect cryopreservation protocols, that they become applicable to, to organs, uh, to human organs. Uh, I mean, that, that's a, a big um, medical benefit. And that, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made um, there as well. So, so I do think there's quite a few low-hanging fruits in the cryobiology space, um, even before we reach, you know, human biostasis technologies. But even before we reach that point, I mean, I think there's quite some low-hanging fruits um, that be, could be quite valuable. And, and we've been trying to, to, to do some, we've done a little bit work on cryobiology, but not as much as I would like. So it's, it's something we're trying to push. When we write that short story, we should in, include some cryonics part where people successfully revive 2,000 years in the future. Yes, <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Although, although biostasis is featured in quite a lot of, um, of science fiction, you know, and a lot of space travel, you know, Star Wars. I mean, a lot of these movies and books, they feature um, human biostasis as a, a perfectly normal and very valuable technology. So from that regards, um, it, it is quite a, I, I suppose it's a technology that has, that, that has some positive um, coverage in, uh, in the science fiction uh, field. Yeah, I remember there are a lot of stories of that kind of plot. Maybe it's also just a way to cover some holes in your plot and make, make life simpler, just like time travel. Yes, exactly. Well, be that as it may, um, I, I think... It's more interesting to try to slow aging before going to plan B or even plan C, like cryonics. And as for that, I'm wondering, how do you think about aging? What are your favorite aging theories? So, so I think one of the things I would say is we probably um, not focused a lot on mechanisms of aging, on trying to understand why we age. So there's a lot of labs. I mean, certainly the field in aging has grown significantly in recent years, in recent decades, the past two or three decades recently, has grown a lot. Um, and there's a lot of advances in manipulations of aging, genetic manipulations, dietary, pharmacological, there's been lots of advances. Um, not so much in terms of our mechanistic understanding of aging, what drives the process of aging. Um, I suppose because it's hard. I mean, it's a lot easier to, you know, get some mice or get some worms, give them a drug, see if they live longer then try to figure out why do they break apart in the first place. It's a lot harder to figure out the biology of aging and the drivers and mechanisms of aging than it is to develop longevity interventions. Um, but it is something that's a bit overlooked uh, now, I, I, I think. Um, so in terms of why I think we age, um, so I suppose one hypothesis I'm quite interested in is the idea that we age not just because of damage accumulation, although I think some forms of damage are important to aging. For example, it's clear that cancer is caused, the major driver of cancer is mutations, is DNA damage and mutations. That's the major driver of, of cancer, that one of the phenotypes of aging. So definitely molecular damage plays a role in some aging phenotypes. Um, but I'm interested in the concept that there's also, I call them programmatic mechanisms or processes, 
originating in development that continue later in life as like a run-on um, that become detrimental later in life as a form of antagonistic pleiotropy. Um, so that's something that, um, that has been discussed for, for decades, actually. Um, I mean, George Williams in his original article on antagonistic pleiotropy, although didn't have all the molecular insights we have now, he did discuss this, this idea. Um, and it is something that's been um, overlooked and um, I've done a bit of work on the theoretical side on this, uh, trying to understand how developmental processes, um, what I call the, the, our software, so the, the, the DNO code that determines how we, how we go from a single cell to, a, to, a, to an adult human being, how that determines those processes and how those processes, or at least some of those processes, can continue later in life and become detrimental. So that's something I'm quite interested in. The problem, of course, is that it's, it's all very complicated. You know, biology, the complexity of biology is beyond our understanding. I mean, we don't understand development. We don't understand the genome. Or we understand some parts of the genome, but we don't really understand gene regulation um, and how these thousands and thousands of components interact with each other. Um, to, to determine the process of development. For example, how you go from a single cell to, to a whole human being, I think it's unbelievable, right? Uh, but it happens and there has to be some sort of code, some sort of software determining it. Um, so it's very complicated, but it's something that I think if we try to better understand it could have important implications for aging. So that, that's something we're, we're trying to do some work, for example, combining multi-omics data sets to, uh, to try to understand how developmental processes, or at least some developmental processes, how, how they run, how they're regulated, and then how they continue later in life um, and become detrimental. So that's something that I think has been overlooked in the field that, that I'm quite interested in exploring further. So my first question here would be, um, as far as I understand, those program theories of aging assume that there is some adaptive benefit to this, does your quasi-program theory also make this assumption, or is it different? Uh, no, not really. No, so so it is different. Um, so uh, uh, my idea is more of a antagonistic pleiotropy. So you have these processes that are beneficial early in life. You know, if you have a particular process, um, I mean, uh, presbyopia is probably a good example. So so this is. Uh, your um, uh, short sightness of, of your eyes. So when you get about 40 and I'm at that age now, you know, when I want to read very close, I need to remove my glasses um, because I can't focus so well. Um, uh, for example, if I'm reading very close to my face. Um, so that's caused by essentially the, the eye lenses that they just grow. They just grow throughout their lives. Now, of course, early life, you want the eye lenses to grow, right? I mean, you're growing and you want it to grow. And it just seems to continue in everyone. And so when you reach about 40, um, it becomes detrimental. Why? Because the, the eye lenses become very thick uh, and you can't focus anymore. And so, so that would be one example. Um, it's not adaptive. It's not evolutionary selected. So according to the evolutionary theory of aging, it's, it's the fading force of natural selection. So the selection is for reproduction not when you're over 40. So, uh, so if you have this particular process that continues, uh, that runs on later in life and becomes detrimental, um, it's just um, a, a case of antagonistic pleiotropy. So the basic theories of aging based on, on 
um, natural selection evolution are actually quite beautiful. So as you mentioned, with age, the pressure or the, there is no selection for people to reproduce when they're older and to maintain their body, right? Yes, I would say, I would say there's a weaker selection. So, uh, so obviously, a very strong selection for um, for reproduction, for generating a, a reprodu reproductively competent human being. So, there's very strong selection. I mean, if you have a, a mutation that will kill you at age five, I mean, that that's not. I mean, there's very strong selection. Uh, but if you have a, a particular process that you know continues or becomes inadvertently uh, downregulated or inadvertently upregulated later in life then it's a weaker there's weaker selection against it um and hence why we age so i'm not in the camp of at least for human aging i mean i think there could be spe i mean there's thousands of species in the world and and, and you know there could be species in which there is selection for uh, uh for for aging and for death i mean I, i think that is possible and there might be some cases of that um, but for humans and the vast majority of mammals, I don't think that would be the case. So, so I, I use the term programmatic features, uh, not program aging, because program aging kind of assumes that um, it is selected for, and I don't think that's that's necessarily the case. I see. And how do you envision we can intervene here? What are you doing recently to intervene in or slow aging? So, so there's a couple of things we're doing. Um, I suppose on a on a basic scale, we've been doing some work on um, longevity drugs. I mean, this is not based on any particular mechanistic understanding of aging. I mean, it's, it's essentially a, a drug repositioning um, computational approach. So, so in a nutshell, we take gene expression profiles of longevity interventions like caloric restriction, and then we try to find drugs that um, mimic Uh, or whose, whose gene expression signatures are overlapping with longevity interventions. That, that's basically the concept. Um, so we've developed several approaches from classical bioinformatics approaches to, uh, to machine learning-based approaches for doing this. So then we try to identify compounds that will be promising candidates for, for longevity interventions. Um, so we've done some work on this. I mean, we published uh, an article some well, a few years back on this methodology and tested some drugs in, um, in C. elegans. Um, one of them was, uh, was a Lantuin, um, that I thought was, was quite interesting. So the first to show that a Lantuin has, uh, well, it's a longevity drug in C. elegans and it's been shown by other labs. Um, in fact, in Singapore, um, now more recently, earlier this year, we published a, a study on real menadine. Um, again, so it's the idea of, Focusing on realmenadin is also based on this computational drug prioritization, drug repositioning method. And we focus on realmenadin, which we showed in, in worms that it extends lifespan, um, it extends health span. Uh, together with collaborators at Harvard, they also showed that when you feed it to, to mice, it induces similar gene expression signatures to caloric restriction. So we think it's a promising new longevity drug. Uh, because rivalmedidine is already used as an antihypertensive drug, uh, so in human patients, and it's relatively well tolerated. So, so it's a promising drug for repurposing in the context of longevity. Uh, and so now we're pushing for longer studies in mice, so lifespan studies in mice, and also 
trying to do a small proof of concept clinical trial. So that's something we're trying to do. We're trying to get some funding, trying to get some <laughs> uh, collaborators as well, clinicians on board to try to do um, this work on, um, on real managing. So you mentioned you would like to run mouse studies with it. Have you considered applying to the interventions testing program? Since I was just interviewing Rich Miller, I have to, I, it was on my mind. Uh, yes, absolutely. I think, I think that would be the way to go. I don't think uh, we would do a full lifespan study uh, here. Um, I mean, our lab, we, we, we're, we're not experts in mouse lifespan studies. So, uh, so the idea would be to either have a collaborator that would uh, help us or um, submit it to the, to the ITP. So that, that's, that's the plan is to uh, submit a proposal to the ITP. And I've, I've, so some years back, I, uh, I actually had a successful application to the ITP. Um, I suggested fish oil, which, which was selected and they tested it. And it didn't extend lifespan, unfortunately, but that uh, hopefully real manadine will be more successful. So, so yes, that, that's in, the, in my plans. Now we know it was you with the fish oil. So you, you thought it yes. will extend lifespan. <laughs> you thought, you, you speculated it will extend lifespan. So the fish oil story goes back to whew, maybe 15 years ago. So, um, so we did this analysis of different longevity manipulations in mice uh, and looked at demographic rates of aging. So the idea is that you, know, you can have an intervention, genetic or pharmacological or dietary, any intervention that extends longevity, it may not necessarily be impact on aging, right? I mean, if you have a longevity in, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, if you have an intervention that curbs cancer in mice, it's going to increase lifespan even if it has absolutely no impact on anything besides cancer. So the idea is, okay, can we try to figure out um, mathematically which interventions are impacting on aging and which not? And so we've looked on demographic rates of aging. So, so the pace at which mortality increases with age. So um, if that's steeper or not, um, or, or if the slope of the, of the curve changes uh, from a given intervention. And so, for example, caloric restriction it, uh, you have a, a, a steeper curve in the controls than in caloric restriction. So caloric restriction, uh, at least, well, the data set we used was slowing down the, the demographic rate of aging. But we could argue it was slowing down the aging process, not having just effects on a single disease. So, so we did this analysis for various genetic mutants and et cetera. And one of the data sets we analyzed was actually fish oil. And it was an experiment on... Um, New Zealand black, if I remember correctly, strain, which is a relatively short-lived strain. And in this strain, uh, fish oil was retarding the rate of aging, uh, the demographic rate of aging. And so I found that very puzzling. And so, you know, it led me to, you know, the, to read more about the topic. And, you know, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, there's fish oil supplements, there's some epidemiological data suggesting it had benefits. Uh, so, you know, that, that led me to then propose fish oil to the to the ITP based on what I observe at the mathematical level in this short-lived mouse strain. Um, and, you know, so the fact that it's already used by, um, by, by, by human beings. It's funny. I was actually worried it might accelerate aging. As you may know, there are this, these uh, papers showing reduced membrane peroxidation indices in longer-lived species. And some people were worried that if you increase them through high-dose fish oil supplementation, this could actually even accelerate aging. But also, this did not happen, right? It did nothing, really. No, there was no statistically significant difference between lifespan of controls and, uh, and animals fed fish oil at two dosages, 
males and females, uh, uh, there was no difference whatsoever. No. Uh, now, the other thing we, uh, so I, I suppose in terms of developing interventions, I think there's, there's two ways. So one of them is longevity drugs, which I think it's kind of the low hanging fruit. It's what I think is achievable in the foreseeable future. Um, and I do think we'll have longevity drugs. I don't know if it's going to be a real methadone. It would be nice, but I mean, as I'm sure, there's studies on rapamycin, metformin, and many other compounds. But I, I do think we'll have longevity drugs in humans in in, in the near future, so to speak. Uh, so I'm quite optimistic about it. Uh, so that's something I'm interested in, and I think that's something could have a, an impact, could have, like I said, a big impact in the field. On the other hand, you know, longevity drugs, even rapamycin, extends lifespan, what, 10, 15% in mice? I mean, it, it's, it doesn't have that big of an effect. So, um, so I, I suppose the you know, riskier, the, the, the high-hanging fruit w- would be to develop interventions uh, you know, that reverse aging. So, so in that regards, we're, we're doing some work as well on partial reprogramming. Um, so, I mean, if you think about aging as about running of a software, you know, these developmental processes that continue later in life, then, well, I mean, that, that uh, and it's probably, I would say one of the facets of it would be, you know, epigenetic information and, uh, and associated gene regulatory networks. So if you want to bring it back, right, I mean, we know we, we can do it with, uh, with reprogramming, um, like it happens in reproduction and, and uh, nuclear transfer, right? So you sort of reset your software. Um, now, of course, partial reprogramming and reprogramming, they have a lot of issues still in terms of reducing you know, cancer. I mean, you, you, you don't just want to have your cells turn into fetal cells, right? That, that that's by itself is not going to help you. Um, but I certainly think from a theoretical perspective that it should be possible for specific tissues to take the cells back into their, uh, uh, let's call it, uh, software programs uh, while maintaining cell identity. And some experiments in partial reprogramming suggest this is indeed possible. So, uh, so that, that's something I'm quite interested in as well, both in the lab and also with YouthBio, which is a US bias company I'm the CSO of. Um, and we're focusing on developing gene therapies uh, based on partial reprogramming to, to rejuvenate cells. So, so that's, that's the other, let's call it the high risk, high, you know, high potential, uh, high reward approach. Um, so, so those are the two areas, one on longevity drugs and the other on, um, on reprogramming um, that, that I'm focusing on. Um, I suppose on the reprogramming, as I said, it's riskier, um, a lot of issues still with safety, uh, with efficiency. Um, with, I, I think you need to be more precise. I think the Yamanaka factors are still a blunt instrument. We need to optimize them. We need to, to figure out exactly for which tissue, which genes you have to upregulate or downregulate even um, in order to, to induce rejuvenation. So that's something I'm, I'm quite interested in, in as well. Can you uh, say more? Do you already have some tissues in mind where you think it works particularly well or not yet? So, so we're doing some work on the company with a couple of particular tissues, but I'm, I, I'm afraid I cannot go into that level of detail. Um, I mean, my take would be, so I, I would say, generally speaking, there's two considerations. One of them is, is, is the data. So I like the data-driven approach, which is, you know, you take data from, a, say, a bunch of tissues, 
uh, and then you try to see which ones you have the better predictions from a computational slash statistical perspective. So I like that. I, I like that data driven. Hey, we, we're going to do what, uh, you know, what the data tells us, basically. Um, I mean, it's not very easy to get funding for that approach, I have to say, because generally when you apply for a grant or even if you're in a company, you want to have something specific. Oh, we're going to study the liver. We're going to study the skin. Uh, we're going to do use this skin fibroblast and this skin cells and this skin model. I mean, that's what people who review grant applications generally like. But, you know, if I had a lot of funding, that's what I would do. I would use this data-driven approach to home in on the most promising tissues. Um, so that, that's one thing I, uh, I would like to do. Uh, the other is more practical considerations. I mean, if you can do gene therapy, say, for any tissue, which tissue are you going to go? Um, I was actually asked this in a conference in Belgium several years ago. Uh, and my answer was the immune system. Uh, why? Because it's systemic. Uh, because you actually can access some of the cells from the immune system. And if you can rejuvenate the immune system, it's going to have an impact on the whole organism and multiple age-related diseases, right? So if, if I had to pick a tissue to go for gene therapy, and uh, we actually did a review with a, a previous company I, I, I worked with called Centaura just uh, two years ago uh, on you know, in therapies targeting the immune system. Uh, why? Because, yeah, if I had to choose one target, that would be the immune system for, let's call it, practical reasons and, and potential stronger benefits than targeting individual tissues. That makes sense. And it actually, it reminds me of a pretty cool paper that I need to send you. So recently some people found that there is a lot of immune cell infiltration in mouse tissues. So it kind of raises the idea that maybe you can ablate some of the cells in the tissues and then repopulate with healthy, younger um, immune cells, perhaps at some point. Oh, sounds sounds fascinating. Yes, I think I, I'm actually in an institute of inflammation and aging in the um, in the University of Birmingham. So I moved to Birmingham last year. So I've been here for less than a year. Uh, but uh, but it's actually an institute that has quite a lot of focus on the immune system, uh, and it's really complicated. <laughs> it's it's uh, that's that's the downside. It's the complexity. It's a lot of different cell types. It's a lot of different organs, and, and you know it's 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 quite quite a complicated one, and we don't fully understand uh, why uh, the immune system ages in human beings. So, um, but I, 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 as you were saying, yes, it's one that can have a very big impact if we can figure it out and if we can develop interventions. So we had these two approaches. One is relatively low risk with drugs, and the other one is high risk gene therapy, reprogramming, and such. Exactly, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say drugs is low risk, as I'm sure you're aware, most clinical trials for drugs, drugs fail. So a lot of, I think a lot of pharma companies are saying drugs are no, no risk. No, no way drugs are low risk. But let's say that they're lower risk than gene therapies and, and reprogramming. Um, so, uh, so, so yes, they're, I would say they're low-hanging fruits. And I am optimistic that um, we will have longevity drugs in the, in the foreseeable future. And so what you were doing with the romanidin is repurposing. Can you briefly explain what that term means? So the idea is to take a, an existing use drug. So a drug that already has a use. So romanidin is used as an antihypertensive drug. So and apply it to, to a different clinical condition. Um, so imagine, uh, I don't know, cancer. I, I'm not saying romanidin should be used for cancer. I'm using it 
purely as an example. So you take romanidin and use it maybe as an adjuvant therapy in cancer. Um, so that would be a drug repurposing. You're taking one usage and you're applying to something else. That's, that's, that's the idea. And there's examples from other fields on this. Um, and because it's a drug that's already used, I mean, we, we, we know that, I mean, we know which dosage to use. We know it's safe. We know what side effects it has. So, so there's a lot of information on it already. Repurposing recently is quite popular. So things like rapamycin and metformin technically also fall in this category. Yes, absolutely. Because it, you know, it avoids a lot of the hurdles when you're doing drug discovery and drug development. I mean, if you know the drug is safe, if you, people have used it, um, you know side effects, <laughs> I mean, you know the dosage. I mean, there's a lot of information you have already. From a regulatory perspective, it's also easier. Have you had any luck with Romanidin looking at observational studies of Romanidin users, if they're healthy or not? So that's a very good question, and we've tried. Um, so in the UK, there's relatively few patients on Romanidin. It's not the first choice of drug for antihypertensive uh, anti drug. So we did. So we have asked for uh, information. Uh, from colleagues in the UK and in a, a couple of other countries as well. Uh, but the issue is that there's not that many patients on Romanidin. So from a statistical perspective, we haven't been able to find a cohort with a sufficient number of individuals to do a proper statistical analysis on this. Um, that's why I think we may need to do, or I would like to do if we have the, the funding, I'd like to do a small you know, proof of concept clinical trial. I, I wish you the best with that. Romanidin sounds like a cool candidate. Well, thank you. Yes, I think it's uh, <laughs> I think it's worth a shot, you know. Yeah. And maybe we can slowly like get to the end of the podcast with some last few questions. Mm -hmm. um, something else I wanted to ask you, always ask you about some of your older papers. So you did a lot of Gompert's analysis to get like mortality doubling time and all these parameters, right? Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting is that you had this paper about different genetic interventions and some of them had an impact and others did not. And some that I really like, like FGF21, for example, did not seem to do anything, although the mice were quite long-lived and they got quite a lot of lifespan extension. I found this always super confusing about this. Any idea why that would be? So I don't remember specifically <laughs> that that analysis. I mean, I remember the Gompertz analysis, as I mentioned, you know, that was one of the things that, uh, that result that uh, led me to suggest fish oil to the ITP. I think it's, it, it depends on various factors, the Gompertz analysis. In mice, there's always a bit of an issue of sample size. So, so sample size is rarely big enough. So, so, so that's an issue. So you basically do an analysis with a I would say non-optimal sample size. So you, 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 I, I would, you know, I interpret the Gompertz results with a grain of salt. To me, to me, I, I think that's something you should do if you're doing a lifespan analysis. You should do a Gompertz analysis. It's, it, I mean, it's not black and white, but uh, but it can give you some indication whether a particular intervention is impacting on aging or not. Ideally, you also want to interpret it in the context of what the mice are dying of, right? I mean, that that's quite an important question. Um, which unfortunately is not always available in studies. So, um, so that, that's another limitation. I think that there's some, I, I suppose, there is a correlation, I believe, we found. So, you know, a greater lifespan increase 
correlates, although it's not perfect, with a with, with a shift in the Gompertz curve, if I remember correctly. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's the case. Uh, but there's also some biases sometimes. One thing I remember is that there is a correlation between the effect sizes, so how much longevity is increasing in a given experiment, and uh, the longevity of the control mice. Uh, so a negative correlation. In other words, you know, if your control mice don't live very much, chances are you're going to find a big lifespan <laughs> increase. Um, so maybe the problem there is in your controls, not in your, <laughs> not in your um, uh, experimental group. Um, so there are some caveats, I think, uh, when you consider this kind of analysis. To me, it's, uh, you know, it's another piece of the puzzle um, that can help, you know, with other types of evidence, like, you know, cause of death and so on, that can help infer, and, and you know, physiological studies can help infer whether a particular intervention is impacting on aging or not. Yeah, people should pay more attention to this. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool having you on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yes, that was a great conversation. Uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for having me. Maybe we can do one last question. So, or maybe two last questions. So uh, two brief ones. We had an interesting debate. What do you think is more important, health span or lifespan? Um, so I, I think if you are extending lifespan, Okay, let me rephrase that. I think if you have a significant impact on aging, if you are retarding aging, then you will impact on both. You will retard aging process, you extend health span, and you extend lifespan. Now, of course, there are ways of extending lifespan without impacting on health span and vice versa, right? I mean, you can, you can extend health span um, in ways that don't impact on lifespan. But if you are retarding aging, if you are having an impact on aging, if you if it's worth slowing aging, you should impact on both. Um, so uh, so I, I would say for for our purposes, they should go hand in hand, and you should have an impact on both. Right, agree. And my final question would be: Are you personally signed up for cryonics? I think I saw you in a talk mentioned that you are not. Uh, no, I'm not personally signed for cryonics. I suppose if, if I discover tomorrow that I had some terminal cancer, I would consider it, yes. Um, at this stage, I'm not signed up for cryonics. I think also, you know, I, I suppose it, it's quite expensive. That's one of the um, limitations. So as I said, I don't intend to die in the foreseeable future, you know, knock on wood. If they were to change, I would consider it. I mean, if I were a billionaire, I would sign up for cryonics. Yeah. So if I had unlimited funds, uh, but you know, I have daughters, I have a family. So it, it, there are restrictions in what I can do with, uh, with money at the moment. So, so I also have some reservations about the technologies currently being used in cryonics. Um, I would like to see some progress in the, um, in the techniques being used, um, which I know is not easy because there's very hardly any research. But uh, but I would like to see uh, I would like to do some broad research in cryopreservation that would have application in cryonics. So I would like to see some advances in the practices being used in cryonics um, because the current practices don't give me or give me some cause for concern. Um, so the reasons I'm not sign up at the moment, um, but as I said. You know, I think I think uh, 
you know, we're all going to die. And uh, I hope it's not soon. But um, if I if I am at that point, I, I may um, then sign up. Yes. That's very sensible. Um, it was well, thank you. interesting uh, to hear your position on this, on this topic and others. It was great to have you. Well, thank you very much. Yes, it was a pleasure. All right. I really enjoyed this podcast. Just a couple of brief additions. It always amazes me that we never learned in school that aging might be slowable. I believe if we taught the truth about aging, longevity research and the geroscience hypothesis, just like we teach the truth about the theory of evolution, this would do a lot of good and it would change the public opinion about aging and longevity for the better. And we would get many more people working in the field and attracting much more interest. All evidence points to one conclusion. Aging is modifiable. We just have to figure out how, how to do it in humans. And if we do, the benefits to humanity will be tremendous. In my discussion with Pedro, I was also reminded of a talk I attended. When I went to the ARDD conference a while back, I saw a talk by Anu Sumulainen. And what amazed me was that she openly admitted that she wants to cure mitochondrial disease. No pushback, no questions asked. Even though it is a lofty goal that may never be achievable, we grant most scientists the right to dream and have ambitions, unless they are aging researchers. Maybe the climate is changing now, but normally you would get weird looks if you admitted that your goal is to ultimately stop and reverse aging. So my goal with this podcast was to push back against the pushback. However, if we want the right to dream, we have to prove to many doctors that our dreams are actually beneficial to humanity, dreams and not nightmares. One of the issues we discussed in the podcast, for example, was overpopulation and equality. Although I am personally confident slowing aging would not promote equality and lead to overpopulation, those who are not working in the field may have different intuitions about these problems. But let me explain it this way. If you think about it, it makes sense. Human birth rate is usually proportional to the human lifespan at one to two children per lifetime. And these days, it's actually far below replacement rate. So as it stands now, underpopulation in the second half of the 21st century is a real threat to human prosperity and not overpopulation. So this is just one of the minor things I wanted to mention. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. Thanks for listening.